0: Everybody, welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. This is episode 99, one episode away from 100 episodes. That would have put us in syndication if we were a sitcom. How cool! Ooh. That's the, that's the big <laughs> marker usually for um, for syndication.
1: Yeah,
0: but it's this is a special one. So welcome to our first documentary review episode. We are Woohoo. so excited to add this feature to our show, as our listeners have been sending very specific suggestions and requests about this for really since we've started
1: all the time. Yeah and we love it cuz now our homework is to watch netflix right <laughs> <laughs> no it's it's a great way to be able to you know listen to our listeners honor their requests and also provide some additional psych perspectives to the crimes and the perpetrators and the victims and the productions that we're going to review here. You know, I think this is going to be probably the most casual of the four episodes that we put out each month between the two psych episodes. And the vintage one is just you and I kind of talking about these documentaries and what we think and just, you know, our our silly reactions as consumers and viewers. But of course, there's going to be some psych like elements in there that we can touch on a little bit.
0: So yeah, I'll I'll tell you I I love that part of it because while I have seen a a good number of true crime documentaries on the streaming services. There's a lot I haven't seen. This first one is one that I have not seen. I would not have watched it because it wasn't particularly advertised well at all. It wasn't promoted well. And now, you know, this is one that I promise you at the end of the episode, you're left with your jaw hanging open at at how flawed our system is, which our legal system, which is still one of the best ones in the world.
1: Yeah, for sure. I actually heard about this doc Documentary because I was on a another podcast, our friends at tennis podcast, Nick Amel Mel had me on to guess the top true crime documentaries of 2021. And this was the number one. And I well, had never heard of it.
0: <laughs> I hadn't heard. Yeah, I had not heard of it either. And I can really see why though, I think yes. that there are some flaws in the way it is executed. But the message that's delivering is, is really substantial. So for this week, we are reviewing the Phantom. It is a 2021 release. It can be found right now streaming on Netflix. It has a 100% score on Rotten Tomatoes.
1: Whoa, that's what which I is pretty do.
0: impressive because they don't hand those out. I think it's impressive. Like again, I think that there are some things in the narrative that are a little draggy, and would like if you if you don't pay attention, you're going to lose interest in the first 15 minutes. But please hold out because. Yes. You, get, you get on a roller coaster ride that is really disturbing, actually. So I'm going to give you a little bit of the background from the IMDP description and a little bit of additional info. Carlos De Luna was arrested in 1983, aged 21, for the murder of Wanda Lopez. Carlos protested his innocence until his execution, declaring that it was another Carlos that had committed the crime. Mm. Wanda died from multiple stab wounds, apparently from a very specific type of knife known as a buck knife. Wanda was on the phone with emergency services when she was killed. She had called 911 to report a suspicious person prior to that perpetrator brutally ending her life. Wanda was the clerk there at the combination store and gas station where this crime occurred. And the director of this one-off episode documentary is Patrick Forbes. So this Um, is
1: Only, what, a 90-minute episode or film?
0: If even. If even, yeah.
1: (laughs) We put everything in terms of episodes nowadays, right? Yeah, another reason why it's our first pick, because we didn't have to sit through like eight hours of (laughs) docuseries, but well worth it. As far as trigger warnings today, obviously, we're going to be talking about murder, a lot of emotional topics like wrongful conviction and death penalty issues, and then veiled racism, and some brief mentions of rape. So yes. that's what is all going to be included today. So this case takes place in 1983 in Corpus Christi, Texas. And as Scott mentioned, this documentary starts off like a lot of documentaries do, right? With the the phone call coming through and a 911 call tape being played. And the 911 call is of this woman, Wanda, who's working in the gas station convenience store, saying there's the man with a knife. About to enter my store. And she tells the dispatcher that he enters, and you're kind of there along with her as he's trying to get information, but she's trying not to say too much because the perpetrator's right there. And then really, you just hear muffled noises on the other end of the line. And we learn that she's stabbed to death while on the phone with the 911 dispatcher. And the victim was a young mother, and she was well liked and a beautiful woman from the local Mexican community of Corpus Christi, Texas. But we are introduced to a number of players throughout this documentary. And in the first third, it's kind of weird how I divided this documentary up in my mind, but kind of the first third, we're introduced to the regular players, right? We have witnesses that were at the scene that night. You have the first responders, the prosecuting attorney, the defense attorney, the reporter that was the young, new reporter on scene. We also have the suspect's brother and sister that are interviewed for this documentary, as well as the capital punishment appeals attorney. So it was so interesting to get his perspective, as well as a local community attorney who is also Hispanic and just gives us a lot of depth as to what the community is like and how they face the criminal justice system. But you have the crime being described by the witnesses on scene at the beginning, the responding officers... And it's pretty slam dunk, right? Like 911 call, witnesses see a man fleeing from the scene and Carlos is found hiding under a car with a wad of cash in his pocket. I mean, you know, how else can you wrap this up neatly? But we all know better, right? How many documentaries have you seen, Scott? That the first first third tells you one thing and it's never how it's going to turn out. Can't trust anything that happens in a true crime doc at the beginning. So certainly looks nice and neat, but we as viewers definitely know better. So the person they catch is Carlos DeLuna and he says he didn't do it. He says he knows who did it, but at first he doesn't want to say anything because apparently this other Carlos that he says did it is a scary guy and he clams up and sticks to his innocence. I, again, like what I really kind of like in this beginning is we get the regular players views and these attorneys who the both defense and the DA are both white men And pretty quickly, we get layered into more of the community and what it's really like living in Texas. And not only how perpetrators are treated if they are people of color, but also giving some context to like Wanda as a Mexican-American, you know, how much priority did even a death this horrific Garner with the police department. I mean, was that something that felt important to you in the story, Scott?
0: Yeah, I mean, there, I don't think that they were, you you know, it's funny when you were talking earlier, I think you used the term veiled racism. I don't think it was veiled at all. I think that they called it really clearly and the attorney that they're speaking to does a really great job of talking about how this was 70s, early 80s in a small Texas town. There was an absolute division vision of priorities within law enforcement. And if Mm -hmm. it was brown on brown crime, it was just lock it up, slap it on somebody and lock it up. And that's exactly what they did here. They made the not only did they make no effort, they impeded it in many cases and they fucked up a bunch of things that will talk about a little bit later on, but it's pretty shocking. I mean, even when you think, you know, when you talk, when we, and we talk often here about the disparities between how people of color fare in the legal system that we have in this country. And here is a really blatant example of it. That's really staggering.
1: Yeah. I think he even refers to the death of Wanda as being seen as like, well, like one less Mexican, you know, like, okay, she's gone. And now we like arrested this guy down the street that, you know, witnesses point it out and said, yep, that was the guy running from the scene and done. It's interesting because yes, they, they run through their cases, the, they interview the prosecution, um, and the, that, that district attorney and what he had, and then the defense attorney and how he was doing his best job with what he was working against as well. But they do this thing in this documentary where it's like courtroom reenactments, but with the actual attorneys and witnesses, what did you think about that? Cause I, it was Usually really, it's not like that.
0: No, it was really off-putting. For one thing, the ages were completely wrong and everybody <laughs> right. seemed... And I get it. Like, I think that this was probably done on pretty much a shoestring budget. And that's probably why. Because there were also... A, there was a, something else that was... I thought it was... Alter, I thought it was simultaneously well done and interesting flash concerning. And that was when they're talking to the DA... Mm -hmm. who was basically still in office somewhere there. I mean, he was sitting in his office. So maybe, I don't know if he's, he's probably not the DA, but he's probably an attorney or or something now. And he just had no, he looked like terrified that all of this stuff was coming out. He had no answers for anything. There was no slick response. There was nothing. It was like... And and he was in some of the walkthrough things. And you're like, man, <laughs> why would you be so stupid as to...
1: I think this all the time in documentaries. Like, why are you allowing yourself to be interviewed? Because you're going to come off like such a smug asshole or just like, you don't know what you're talking about. But it's like people can't help themselves. I guess. Yes. And
0: it also... Look, I mean, the, the, the whole... This is something that, you know, we have a a wonderful attorney on one of our group techs. And although she refuses to have her own podcast, which she should, she's (laughs) always like a really great sounding board for us and reflection when we make comments. And like, I I made something like, well, this should be required watching. And she'd be like, it wouldn't make any difference, (laughs) you know, because because she's in there. She understands the personalities and stuff. But when it comes back to something like this, it is surprising to me that the parameters of your job responsibility or an attorney are to the DA has an objective and defense has an objective. And there's a lot of moral flexibility, I think, that you have to have in order to pursue that. Like, you know, if you know you're defending a guilty client, you just don't ask those questions, right? I mean, that's just the way it's set up. Sure. But when you see somebody just looking like a deer in the headlights when they're being interviewed, and it's like, yeah, you're responsible for at least one person being executed. How many others? Oh my God. Did it happen to as well? So
1: yeah, it's gotta be a a defense mechanism, but I just going back to the way they had the actual people doing these reenactments, like reading their testimony and reading their questioning, sort of like role-playing was just, I get it because I think it gets so, it's like, I'm so over the blurry, like reenactment with the voiceover, but this didn't work either. I think they should have filmed it, tried it and been like, I don't know. I understand. But, you know,
0: from a production standpoint, you have to have something visual yeah, or else it's I, just going to be. It's, it's going to be somebody talking. And, you know, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes it'd be better to just do a, an animated PowerPoint or something <laughs> for some <laughs> of these. Yeah. yeah. animated. it.
1: Well, so. The, the hallmark of this case of arresting Carlos is really eyewitness testimony, like picking him out after seeing him flee the scene. And this might be a place where we have a little bit more of our psychobabble corner is about eyewitness testimony.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is the only thing really that I wanted to make sure that I put a little bit of prep into for us. And because eyewitness testimony, as most of you who are into this milieu will understand, it is notoriously problematic for multiple reasons. And they're really uh, the Innocence Project, which I go to their website a lot for resources and and articles and stuff because it's a really, really great organization. They have a really great page that we will link to about the problems in eyewitness testimony. And there are some bullet points here that we'll touch on on why you can't rely on it.
1: Yeah. So first and foremost, it's definitely the limitation of just our memory as human beings. Memories, even over brief periods of time, can become distorted with the initial exposure of something that's a trauma, something unexpected, something shocking that's happening, or later when recalled and a witness may not realize that his or her memories have undergone a little bit of an evolution or some changes. And it's not that the person is trying to be malicious and lie intentionally. It's just our brain tends to distort things over time. And that can certainly happen in moments when crime is being committed, especially.
0: I think, and I'm not being I'm not trying to be snarky or smarmy when I say this, but there are a few superhuman people on the planet and throughout Mm -hmm. history that have had Mm -hmm. what we call photographic or eidetic memory. Mary Lou Henner, the actress who's been in several movies, she was in the 70s TV series Taxi, is an unbelievable eidetic memory. Like she remembers... Every single person she has ever met, she remembers word for word every conversation. It's always something she's a little trick she does when she goes on talk shows. But that that's a real thing. But it's very rare. And what we're talking about is that there's only a handful of people really in the world that have absolutely static, accurate memories. Everything Mm -hmm. else is very plastic and we have a lot of limitations. Now, there are also environmental factors that play a big part in the heat of the moment. Like if you're on the scene and you hear a scream and then someone running out, you're going to have a physiological response. And that Mm -hmm. physiological response is going to send all sorts of chemicals through your body. And then those chemicals are going to be filtered through ambient environmental factors. So, uh, lighting, you know, is it day or is it night? Is it foggy? Do you have a clear line of sight? And then the more distance, like even as feet, they have now stats on how poor it becomes given the distance, like just yeah. a few feet can make all the difference in really lowering the reliability of somebody's uh, memory of something.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like the best film depiction to look at all of this is my cousin Vinny, (laughs) because that's like how they totally dispel all the myths and shoot down all the evidence on the prosecution side is looking at at how unreliable witnesses are from a certain distance and um, with some of these factors there. But also there's these questionable procedures that are done when People are shown photographic or in-person lineups. So these can be really poorly managed interviews and procedures that are done. And if they are not done in a very consistent way, it would almost have to be exactly replicated like, like a psychological or behavioral study to have it be reliable but it's not. We try to make it as as much as we can in law enforcement, but people are human, people are going to deviate, people are also going to try and get their own agenda pushed through at times. So that can really distort a witness's memory if you have a lineup procedure that is being done incorrectly or with some bias to it. So I think that's also something we have to talk about here that pertains to this case.
0: Definitely. Now, adding on to that, making all this complex is that there's the possibility of misrepresentation during the legal proceedings. Legal representation, defense or prosecution may attempt to express or visualize or present a higher level of confidence in their witness than their witness actually ever had. And then that then pollutes or contaminates the actual witnesses testimony because they feel pressured to have a certain, like maybe they were feeling like a little bit wonky about what they saw. Right. And now they're being brought into a legal proceeding and they're being asked these very concrete questions. So that can really swing it in a bad direction as well.
1: Yeah. People just feel uneasy giving sort of ambiguous answers, even if that's the truth. And I think witnesses can feel bullied into one way or the other. So, I mean, overall, it just when eyewitness testimony is present, it's really necessary that all issues regarding that testimony and that experience be weighed with the predominance of the other information at the trial and that it cannot be just on eyewitness testimony. So I would advise our listeners, if you want to dive more into the psych research on this, there is more than enough of a body of work produced by Elizabeth Loftus, who has done the most infamous work on how unreliable eyewitness testimony is. I don't know if I've told this story before on the podcast, but when I was in undergrad, I was in a, they used to call it legal psychology before it was forensic psychology. (laughs) That's how long ago. But my teacher did this demonstration for us all sitting in class and she was giving her lecture and a man came into the classroom and asked her to sign something real quick. And she took a moment to do that. And we just like talked amongst ourselves or whatever. And then he left. And then several minutes later, she said, okay, I just want everybody to pause and stop. And the man that came in here, what was he wearing? And The answers were all over the place. I remember I was pretty dead set that he was wearing some sort of business attire, if not a suit and a tie. And when he came in, he was not. He was very, very casual. But there was something about that interaction that my memory said, Oh, he must be a person of authority to come in and interrupt our class to have her sign something. Right. So my brain like filled in the narrative and had the story to go with it. And this dude came back in his shorts and his shirt. And I was just blown away by that but you know here we were all unsuspecting yes but also not under stress just sitting there asked to like take a moment i just imagine it you know had there been something that was inducing fight or flight or if a weapon was involved we know that that really sort of gives you perceptual distortions that can then be encoded incorrectly or not incorrectly necessarily but it's just not encoded at all as far as memory goes interesting stuff for sure But back to our documentary at hand, sort of towards the end of this first third, you get some inkling that like, oh, there's there's a town with secrets and dirty laundry. And I'm Definitely. just sitting there like, oh, here we go. <laughs> so the, the second third starts up and it really it starts to go more into the story of this reporter who she was young. She starts visiting Carlos in, in lockup when he's going through his trial initially when she's covering that and how she's sort of building this rapport with him to get him to chat with her. And I thought it was so So interesting because, you know, she talks about this process of like, I know this is a guy that there's a slam-dunk case against and he's just trying to snow me by saying, you know, that, hey, like, I wish I'd had a friend like you when I was younger and, you know, nobody's going to believe me and I'm innocent and there's this other Carlos that did it. And I just thought it was a very interesting parallel experience to what you and I have felt working with offenders before.
0: Oh, yeah. And I think she does something really great, too. I mean, she's she's a great part of this story. And they frame her relationship very well because they started off with her describing the first time she saw him walking down the hallway. And this was Mm -hmm. she had not struck up the relationship with him yet. But she is seeing him walking down the long hallway of the jail or the the tunnel, I mean, into the courtroom. So he's wearing he's he's cleaned up he's wearing a suit and he's with his attorney and she says you know I saw him walking with that swagger and you know and I was like he's everything they said he is he's a killer here he is you know walking down the hallway with this swagger thinking that he's going to get off and her whole goal was to get a story like I'm you know it wasn't like she went in thinking that he was innocent or you know, it was a slam dunk for her as well at that time. So she writes a letter. And then I also liked how, even though she was questioning whether or not she was being snowed, she was looking at the things that did not add up. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there's a lot there that does not add up.
1: Yeah. Cause for whatever reason, he starts opening up to her, which he really wasn't doing to anyone else. And, you know, I think again, like for you and I who've worked with defenders that you're always like, eh, okay. Why, why are you trusting me so much? Or why? Do you feel like you're going to open up to me? Are you going to make me think I'm the special therapist that, you know,
0: right? And that's something getting
1: all this out of you.
0: Exactly. You know, I remember our our supervisor, Leah, I had a, mm-hmm. a young offender and it was this, it was a particular case where the only reason this guy met the criteria for offender was that he was one year out of the accepted age range for him uh-huh. to be interacting with a young woman. And Leah looked at me and she's like, you really like him, don't you? And I said, well, God, I guess I do because of all of our clients, he's the one that shows up on time, (laughs) he's cooperative. He's opening up in ways like I'm not having to pull information out of him. And she said, that's all great. That's all good. That's grist for the mill. That's good work. But make sure that that doesn't cloud your judgment as to what the underlying issue is. And another right. reason why you and I both have such great respect for, for Leah. She's yes. a fantastic supervisor. Another thing that was just so crazy about this particular documentary is and, and that the reporter brings up and something I think because of you out there that are listening to us right now. There's nobody that hasn't watched Dexter and or watched forensic files and understand that blood tells everything. Mm-hmm. Blood tells a story in a brutal crime. It leaves so many clues. This was a horrific stabbing. There would have been, there is blood all over the crime scene. And you see some oh, very graphic photos, really graphic photos, not a spot of blood on him at all. None. Yeah. Yeah. The crime scene is completely trashed. One of the still photos clearly shows that there's a woman there wearing high heel boots. She's standing in a puddle of blood and on the area where there's blood spatter and strewn paper. It's like and that's one of the other things that the Hispanic attorney is going like the crime scene was just completely contaminated.
1: Yeah. They didn't respect it
0: at all. It's like, now would they have done that in another part of town? I don't think they would. I think they would have been a lot mm-hmm. more careful.
1: Yeah. The the idea is that like, oh, we got our man. Now we can just go in here and like, whatever like, you know, we don't have to treat this as if it's something that's really still being investigated. Yeah, that is a huge clue, right? There's like, it's as if he was not in there at all. Nobody could go in there without getting blood all over them. And then in this portion, we also hear a lot more from Carlos's brother. We start to hear the narrative of, you know, the area of town where they grew up, their young mother raising seven of them, I think it was, as a single mother and how they would get into trouble and living in the projects and how really the the revolving sort of system of, you know, when boys in this neighborhood would get into trouble, they would get court appointed attorneys and then they would go to prison and people really weren't fighting on their behalf like they would if they had had money and men were going to death row. And there's just, again, nobody caring because they're poor and because they're brown. And, you know, here's again, the story of it's not me. It's this other guy named Carlo. And they're just completely pushing it to the side rather than thinking, oh, this could be mistaken identity because of witnesses just sort of substituting one brown man for another.
0: Right. Which becomes actually even more ironic later on in the story that we'll get to. One of the things that his brother says that I think is also really helpful as to helping you understand why law enforcement thought they had enough of a suspect is that Carlos was, you know, he was a problem kid you know, he was a problem man. He was a criminal. It was nothing, not a lot of major stuff, but he, you know, he ran the streets. He was not good to his family. His brother even gives an example, I think, of him stealing his car and trashing Mm -hmm. it and, you know, stealing money from the parents. So this is like a, you know, a guy that was wandering through life and certainly was mixing with some pretty bad people, which I think complicated it. And then there's also the death penalty appeals attorney. He has a quote that was really, well, kind of a gut punch. The justice system always defaults to certainty. So essentially, when you have a trial, lawyers, jury, you are going to trust that that system is working, whether it's working or not.
1: I know, I know. I thought that quote was just so spot on that we default to that. And then, you know, there is nothing else. There's no like, well, what if that doesn't work? And it, gosh, he's talking, you know, because Carlos is found guilty. He does get sentenced to death. And so starts, you know, kind of this portion of people experiencing that including the reporter, including his brother, talking to him on that final night. And this attorney that you're talking about, he talks about you know how when people he has fought for, it's the night of their executions that he sits there with a bottle of scotch, just kind of waiting for the phone to ring if there's a stay called in by the governor and just talking about how that's the most helpless, worst feeling ever. And that's how he copes with it. That's, that's sort of his little tradition of what he does. But it's really really heartbreaking when the reporter, she talks about, you know, it's about 1030 at night and on the night of the execution and the phone rings and it's the correctional facility. And she's like, what the hell are they calling me for at 1030 at night? And they ask her, if she's willing to take a call from Carlos. He calls her and basically just, opens up to her telling her that he's scared to die and she gives him one last chance of Carlos is there anything you want to get off your chest and thinking like okay this is it he's going to tell me he really did it and he says basically like knows what she's getting at but you know says no I, I know that I'm going to go to heaven because I didn't do this and she's like well, what do you say to a man who's going to die in less than two hours just awful and same with his brother I mean some very similar recounts of his of those last moments of hearing from his brother, Carlos. But Carlos is put to death. His sister was in attendance. She wanted to witness this. And, you know, I think that's something unique about this documentary. We don't get to hear from the families of the perpetrators very often.
0: Yeah, I... There's something for anybody who hasn't seen it yet. I do want to prepare you. There is like a really disturbing account of something that can go wrong. It should never go wrong. There's no excuse for this whatsoever. And that is that the first medication administered to him did not work. And it took two additional administrations before they could administer yeah. the next one. So, I mean, definitely fits the the parameters of cruel and unusual punishment. I mean, he was tortured there at the end of his life Mm -hmm. in a way that was completely unnecessary. But that's a whole other thing about even the drugs that are available. I know that was big in the news a few a few years ago and who will who are people that are refusing to administer them and the politics involved and all that. But we'll we'll talk about that later. Yeah. So so that
1: kind of is i don't know i kind of divide this into thirds into my head but really halfway through is where this final piece starts and it fast forwards us to 14 years later and you're like oh okay where's this going and this is where i really think it starts to get great because you have this totally uninvested like outside entity that all of a sudden has eyes on this case in the most like fluke way ever. But essentially Columbia Law School had been conducting some research, looking into capital cases in Texas after finding a lot of issues in their criminal justice system and decides to dig a little bit deeper. And so this law professor is kind of picking cases to look at. And one of his, I think one of his students says like, what about this case with this Carlos DeLuna guy? Like he said, some other guy did it. And he was like, eh, that's not really a great case to look into but there's another case nearby (laughs) and he sends an investigator down there and then just like at the last minute he tells his investigator hey while you're down there if you have some free time and you can find this carlos hernandez who happens to look like carlos deluna let me know and let me see how that goes and sure enough his investigator is able to find this other
0: carlos so I was going to say this later, but I think this is a good time to say it about the irony is this is not just a matter of looking at two dark skinned guys or darker skinned guys and saying, oh, right. they, they look they're they're the same color. But so they look alike. both of these Carloses actually did look very much alike, almost the insane. same facial structure, same height, same build. Now, on the night that it happened, one was clean shaven, the other one was not. But when they're both shaved, you could absolutely see why there was some confusion. But here's where it does get really interesting is, you know, here it is 14 years later and the state trial documents clearly outlined what happened at the event that is not Described so well in the previous third. So, at approximately 8 p.m., outside the store where Wanda was working, there was a guy named George Aguirre that drove up and he was a witness, not exactly to the attack, but right before and right after. So, he interacted with Hernandez face to face in close quarters, pulls up, filling his gas tank up. There's a guy standing just outside the door of the station holding a knife, even Mm -hmm. described as playing with a knife. And that knife he was able to describe as the same kind that was used to kill Wanda.
1: Yeah. So Aguirre was actually approached by the man who then asked him for a ride to a nearby bar offering to pay for the ride as he could prove that he had cash. And Agiri declines as he had paid for the gas inside the store, warning Wanda about the man with the knife and told her to call police. Because remember, Wanda's like the word she uses when she calls 911 is there's a purpose trader outside with a knife which makes sense now that you know that she was kind of instructed to call the police about this guy. And then as Aguirre drove out of the gas station parking lot, he observes the man later identified as Carlos Hernandez entering the store.
0: So Aguirre could not shake the feeling. He's like really freaked out. He drives just maybe an eighth of a mile down the road, pulls over to some business that has a security guard out in the parking lot and says, you got to call 911. Something's going on down there. And the guard calls 911. Then he says i gotta go back he turns back to the station which was called something shamrock and already uh police cars were arriving
1: yeah because she was being killed while on the phone right so that very night Agiri identifies deluna as the man with the knife despite being within feet of hernandez earlier
0: Yes. So that's the wild trip. So we go back to what we're talking about before about eyewitness. These guys looked so similar. The only thing different was the clothing that they were wearing. And the really screwed up thing is Aguirre was not asked to identify DeLuna at the trial. So by the time they went to trial, Mm -hmm. they were like, let's not ask him to point fingers and confirm anybody who Um. he is because he might change. They wanted to have him as a solid witness. So there are some really important discrepancies and similarities between the suspects like Hernandez. Mendez was noted to be a serial abuser of women. He had a history of robbing gas stations. He kept the neighborhood in constant fear. He consistently used buck knives of the exact description in the execution yep. of all these crimes. And he had recorded
1: it. in police files. Absolutely.
0: Like, yeah, And in, in included. I mean, it recorded in very long rap sheets.
1: Yeah. And they interview a former girlfriend of his that just talks about the terror of being in a relationship with him as a, I think she was a young teen herself and had just had a baby and like he essentially kept her captive and would rape her. And she had to escape with her child in the middle of the night when he was drunk or off, you know, doing something else. It was just terrifying the, like you said, the terror that he kept this community in. it's one of those examples of everyone knows who it is and everyone knows. Right. But no one wants to say anything.
0: Well, the, the environment was not going to support it. Like they right. knew that the, right. the cops were not going to support them. You know, it was that sort of code of silence. Because the real perpetrator was still out there perpetrating. He's going to, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to finger somebody that lives right next door to you. That's not going to happen.
1: Yeah. And then the cops, after they put him to death, are going to be like, oh, really? Maybe we should look into that. So in contrast, DeLuna also had a criminal record of note, a lot of minor crimes, a lot of thefts. I don't recall any that were armed robbery types, but definitely a lot of ways of just kind of getting by and stealing money or property and He was a black sheep of a family. He even offended against his siblings and his mother from time to time and did not take responsibilities and just decided, like you said, to kind of float through life. But he certainly wasn't the community terrorist that... Hernandez was.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because the interviews with his brother are really heartbreaking because the brother yeah, was are. the one that was the responsible one and you know had been sort yeah. of trying to rein him in all those years and then he gets arrested for this and he's torn because there's a part of him that knows what his brother's history is like but he also wants to believe his brother and then when he finds out later that he was wrongly convicted. I mean, it's just, you know, mm, the the guilt awful. that he feels But I'm so glad that he participated in the way that he did. So let's wrap it up. I mean, I'm sure we both have some thoughts about this. I would want to say that this is very much a palatable condemnation on racism in this country in an area that's predominantly Hispanic and low income. I think I think this is a story that needs to be told. I know it's in the 70s and 80s, but like this is a great story to tell. A tragic story that needs to be heard. I think it's a real indicator on how not to do police work. I mean, obviously, I mean, sadly, as Michelle, our legal consultant, tells us that little has really changed in areas where there's smaller populations and there's no oversight. Mm -hmm. And it's small sort of echo chamber police forces that do what they want to do when they want to do it in their own little enclave, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's also a condemnation on the trial process that took place. And, you know, I certainly, I'm not going to make a blanket statement that all cities would have this level of corruption because I don't think that they did. But clearly, this town does. I mean, it is, they really chose to turn away. And I mean, they they killed they executed an innocent man or at least was innocent of this particular crime. Mm -hmm. You know, it is really eerie how similar that they looked. And the real irony of this is presented in the title of the documentary because it's called The Phantom. Hernandez, the actual killer, was never a phantom in any sense of the word, except for that. That's what the investigators used as an excuse. Who is this guy? We can't find him. You didn't look. They did not look at all because they wanted to keep DeLuna as the perpetrator. Um, Hernandez was named. What's that?
1: That's just a great point. It took an investigator 14 years later on a whim to like find him like that.
0: Oh yeah. And then like, and there's still these these old white dudes are going, oh, he was a ghost. Nobody could find him. It's like, (laughs) no, he was named and identified multiple times. Yeah. And still the DA and law they were like nope, let's just close this case. Let's get it done. So, what are your Thoughtful. final thoughts?
1: Well, hey, I think if you're still undecided on whether or not our country puts innocent people to death, <laughs> this is going to get you on board real quick on the realities of what could happen or what is actually happening. I thought it started out pretty unremarkable, but it quickly turned to super intriguing for me. And like I said, I just really love that piece as you know, we, we panned to 14 years later and this outside source of Columbia Law School comes in and is the one that brings these entities to light. I think it's awful that it had to be that way. But whenever someone who isn't invested for any reasons. It could be misconstrued as to being, you know, advantageous for themselves or or what have you, you know, that just seems like the purest way to kind of analyze something like this. So I, I think for the viewer, that's really the beautiful part to be able to trust what Columbia found and what their investigators found and how this whole thing just crumbles. It's not like we're like, "Uh, okay, well maybe like, yeah, maybe this, this corrupt town, this thing happened in 1983. You're like, oh no, this, this is, this is awful. Oh, clearly, and clearly. Yeah. So yeah, I, like I said, I, I think it's well, well worth the watch and, you know, not the sexiest documentary, not one that I was like, you know, sitting on the edge of my couch for 10 episodes waiting for the next one, but is done very well to get its message across.
0: Yeah, I agree. I looked at it, I guess, for judging. We wanted to do a, a one out of five <laughs> brains. <laughs> yes for scoring, how it was, scoring
1: these, scoring it.
0: <laughs> and, you know, I looked at, was it an interesting subject? Is it an original story? Was it well told, you know, in construction and execution? Is it thought provoking? And overall I came like 4.5. I thought 4.5, but I, I see 4. where you're brains. coming from. Yeah. four point La- five brain or Right
1: brain for that half one. <laughs> oh, a little
0: combo. <laughs> Squid <laughs> the squidge there.
1: Okay, so you, you severed the brain this way rather than. Well, this way. I the think you're right. It, should,
0: it, it wasn't sexy. I mean, were there, and I'm not sure that, like, since it's something mm-hmm. so old. It, it wasn't sexy. It was more tragic than anything.
1: Yeah, you know? it doesn't need to be. Right. So yes, I good point. On, it doesn't need to be. Yeah, yeah. I, I think everyone should watch it to demonstrate how innocent people could be put to death. It wasn't my favorite doc ever. Definitely more brainy than entertainy. But I'm going to give it four brains because I think it's really important
0: piece. Oh, good. So.
1: Cool. yeah yeah so right. the Phantom
0: on Netflix folks please give it a watch it's a quick one yes let us know your thoughts We'll bring it up in one of our upcoming maybe our boards on Facebook or something where we're discussing. Let us know what you think.
1: For sure. Well, guys, our next episode will be episode 100. So we will, it will be a psych episode. We'll figure out something special to do. But otherwise, thanks so much. And we'll see you guys next time on LA.
0: Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. Stay safe. Take care. Bye.
1: Bye Bye-bye. Sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawlspace Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions.
0: The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. Please check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube.
1: All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com can find us on instagram at la not so podcast on twitter at la not so pod and on facebook at la not so confidential media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienist at gmail.com
0: please join us each month on saturdays at 4 p.m pacific standard time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on get vocal entitled behind the couch stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements
1: Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential wherever you get your audio so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way.
0: Thanks for listening and join us next time on LA Not So Confidential.